Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, starting a new book of the Bible tonight. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse uh, by verse. So this summer, we're going to have a lot of great studies together as we're going through these wonderful epistles of the Apostle Paul. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we begin this new study of the book of Philippians, so many lessons on joy, so many powerful lessons on who you are, how you want us to live our lives. God, would you really sink deep into us the the truth of who you are, and would you give us that attribute and joy in our lives for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Happiness, the Broncos are up. Loss of happiness, the Broncos fumble the football, and now they're down. But wait a second, now they're back up. Happiness has returned to your life for a few hours. Happiness, you get a tax return of $1,200. Loss of happiness, your car breaks down, the cost is $1,500, right? Happiness, you get that long-awaited, deserved promotion with a raise. Loss of happiness, the company crashes and you lose your job. You're following the logic. You're following the line of thinking, the roller coaster of happiness. It's what our culture feeds off of, lives on, is this concept of I've got to be happy. I want to be happy. For Paul, he gives us something better, which is joy. That's the theme of the book of Philippians, is joy. Paul is in prison as he is writing this letter to the church of Philippi, and he uses the word rejoice 14 times, and he uses the word joy four times. All logic would think that Paul wouldn't be joyful. And we come to understand that joy is different than happiness. Happiness is based on our circumstances, But joy is based on our relationship with Christ, who he is, the truth of scripture. Joy is a choice that we can make. It's something that doesn't have anything to do with our feelings. I feel like this is a a perfect epistle for me personally right now. I don't know that my strength necessarily is to go through life with joy naturally. I could naturally tell you all the things that are wrong with the situation. Me and Eeyore probably have something in common from from Winnie the Pooh. But I can choose to to live in joy. I can choose to not allow that to get the best of me and respond the same way that the Apostle Paul did. I hope in these next few weeks as we study this epistle that we would all grow in understanding and operating in biblical joy. Joy is the theme, but also joy is the outline. If you're taking notes, chapter 1 is focused on Jesus. Paul will write, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the foundation of joy. He's the vine, we're the branches, as we're attached to him. For me to live is Christ. So that's chapter one. Then chapter two is others. The apostle Paul begins by saying, esteem others better than yourself. And that then follows our foundation of Christ. When we can choose to put other people's needs above our own, we're moving down the road of joy. Well, you guessed it. What's the last letter? What's the last acronym? It's Y, it's you. We've got to put ourselves at the end of the equation, which is difficult to do. It's not just a one-time decision, but every day, Jesus, you're first. Others are second. I'm in last place. And chapters three and four, then Paul focuses on himself, and he says, the things that were dear to me, 
I count as loss so that I could gain Christ. So that's the, the letter for us. Tonight, as we look at these first 18 verses, we're going to look at the lessons of joy. We're going to look at this foundation of joy. Paul's greeting, Paul's thanksgiving, and Paul's prayer. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy. If you've been traveling with us through Paul's letters and epistles, you have a good understanding of this man. He's Saul who became Paul. He was the persecutor of the church who became pastor. And at this point, he's traveling with Timothy. Timothy was a young man that Paul took under his wing, and they're doing ministry together. They're imprisoned together as Paul is writing this letter. God didn't design us to be alone. He didn't design for us to serve him alone. We're better together, and we always find Paul linked up with other believers serving the Lord together. The title that he gives is Bondservants of Jesus Christ, which is a slave by choice. Going back to the Old Testament, a slave after six years on the seventh year, if he was a Hebrew, enslaved to another Hebrew, then he could be set free. But if he wanted to stay, then he would become a bondservant. Exodus chapter 21, a slave by choice. Paul could find joy in his circumstance of prison because his life wasn't his own. He said, I'm choosing to be a slave to Jesus Christ. So I realize that Christ has allowed this in my life. Have you gotten to that place in your life? Every day to surrender it to the Lord. God, I'm serving you. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. As Paul will begin his letters, how he introduces the letters gives us the idea of the tone. When he declares that he's an apostle, that means that Paul has some heavy issues to to hit. But here Paul is introducing himself as a servant. There's only three other letters that he includes that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So that's the author, the human author. Who's he writing to? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Saints mean those that are holy and holy because of their position in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to believers, the saints, who are in Philippi. This is Greece, the Macedonia, the eastern portion of Macedonia. What do we know about Philippi? It was a colony of Rome. So the Roman colony, we also know that there was a lot of Jews there. And the reason for this is the beginning of the church of Philippi. Acts chapter 16, it's a fascinating chapter in scripture. We find that Paul has a vision to go to Macedonia. The Holy Spirit stopped him from going to Asia, forbid him from going to Asia. Then he has this dream, this vision of a man in Macedonia, in this region, that's saying, come help me. So what does Paul do? He journeys to Macedonia. Now that's obedience. That's knowing that God had spoke to him. He gets to Philippi, this city, And what does he find? No synagogue, but he finds a group of women that are praying down by the river. That's a little confusing if you're Paul, isn't it? There's a man that said he needed help, but now all I find is a group of women, and they were Jewish women that were praying by the river. There was no synagogue, so then they would go down to the river and pray. One of those ladies was who? Lydia. And she was a merchant of purple, which was very valuable, that came out of this this region. She gets saved and her household. But where is this man that Paul had this vision of? So now he's traveling through Philippi with Silas. 
And here's a woman who's demon-possessed, following them around, saying, I know you believe in the one most high true God. And scripture says that Paul gets annoyed. I wonder what that looks like when Paul gets annoyed. And he turns around, and so he casts out this demon in the name of Jesus. The, the men that sold the idols and made money off of the fact that she was demon-possessed, they got angry that their loss of income, so they throw Paul and Silas into prison. What does Paul do? Does he feel sorry for himself? Lawsuit? He begins to worship right there in prison. He's in chains in the inner part of the prison. He's crying out to God. Desperation does a lot for worship, doesn't it? If you came in tonight with need in your life, you probably found it pretty easy to worship and resonate with the songs that we sang. Paul's at this place where he's just brutally beaten, locked up. God, you called me here. I'm confused. So far, I've only encountered women, Lydia and this demon-possessed woman. Why? Why? Why am I locked up in prison? But then he presses into the who of Jesus, and he worships, and he worships, and he worships. I wonder what that sounded like in prison. Do you think that's a sound that they normally heard in prison? I can tell you some other things they probably heard in prison. God then causes an earthquake. There's a jailbreak. All of the prisoners are able to go free. But Paul intercedes with these prisoners, says, no, we should stay. Because if they left, the prison keeper would be executed because he lost his prisoners. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in your life when you can convince prisoners when they have the opportunity to go free, hey guys, we should stay. So here comes the jail keeper seeing this and he gives his heart and life to Christ. Welcomes Paul into his home, washes Paul's wounds, and that's the beginning of the church of Philippi. Isn't that awesome? And that's who Paul's writing to, this group that he's so bonded to. Who's there? The bishops and the deacons. Bishops are overseers, they're pastors, elders. Deacons are those focusing on the physical needs. There's good spiritual leadership that's put in place. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace have been entitled the Siamese twins of the New Testament because they're often linked together. The order is always grace before peace. What is grace? It's receiving what we don't deserve. So when we receive God's grace into our lives, then we have God's peace. The peace is a result of God's grace. Also, this is the Greek greeting, grace, charis. Peace is shalom, the Hebrew greeting. You've got Jews and Gentiles together, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. First thing that we see in these lessons of joy tonight is there's confidence in the body. As Paul's in prison, he's confident. And I think the confidence is appropriate biblical confidence that results in joy. And the first thing that he notes, the first thing that he takes joy in is the body of Christ. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He's thinking of Lydia. He's thinking of this demon-possessed woman who'd been set free. Then thinking of the great fellowship that had happened from the jailer who had beat him 
that now was, was saved and the others that have gotten saved. Every time I think about you, I have joy. And there's great comfort and confidence inside of the body of Christ, isn't there? This is what I want you to ponder and think about if you're really wanting to press into joy into your life tonight. If you're, if you're grumpy and you just want to stay grumpy, I understand. You know, so go ahead, just tune me out and that's okay. You're, you're in one of those, those moods. But if you're wanting to understand biblical joy and say, I, I'm really kind of tired of being grumpy. I would really like to understand something beyond happiness, be able to choose joy, is I think it starts with thanksgiving and when we give thanks to God, it gives birth to more gratitude. It gives birth to more thanksgiving. It gives birth to more gratitude. Paul says, what am I thankful for? I'm thankful for the believers in Philippi. And every time I think about them, it brings joy to my heart and mind. Now, Paul's just like us. You think the food's good in prison? Think there's air conditioning? Is the room controlled with the right amount of humidity? Does he get to do laundry? This is difficult. I bet he has a hundred things just like that that he could grumble and complain about if he wanted to. He feels all the same things that we would feel if we were in prison, but he chooses to be thankful. Paul would write to the church of Thessalonica and says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if I'm meant to be in the will of God, then I have to give thanks. If I'm not in the will of God, I'm grumbling and complaining. Let's just all say, ouch, ouch, right? We don't want to think about it that way. I'll hold on to my grumbling and complaining. And God says, that's not my will for you. My will for you is to be thankful. Can you think of some believers tonight that every time you think about them, it causes you to be filled with joy? Maybe someone who led you to Christ. Maybe someone who's discipled you friends that you have inside of the body of Christ. I'm thankful for you guys. So thankful to be part of our RMC, to see what God's doing. Your love for Jesus, your love for the scriptures. And there's confidence in the body of Christ because Jesus is the head. Not that the body is perfect, but I know that my life would not be the same if it wasn't for the body of Christ. I'm sure that your life is the same as well. Paul goes on, and he says, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. So his attitude towards them is one of joy. And here's the first time he mentions rejoicing or joy. I'm thinking about you, so thankful for you, and then I'm lifting you up in prayer to the Lord. Every prayer of mine, making request for you with joy. Paul can't be with the church of Philippi, but he can go to God's throne on their behalf. Are there some loved ones, some believers that you can't be in the same room with? You can't be in the same proximity. There's a prison that keeps you from being close to them. You can go to the Lord in prayer, and you can do it with joy. In verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. What does Paul have in common with the church of Philippi? He says it's fellowship in the gospel. The word fellowship, it means koinonia in the Greek. It's to share in common. So what we have in common, what we share in common is the gospel. And that's what he recognizes from the very first day until now. You believe in Christ, his death and resurrection. I believe in Christ and his death and resurrection. And to share things in common is powerful. 
I mentioned the Broncos. You get a bunch of Bronco fans together, it's powerful. You get a bunch of people that are into golf, it's powerful. You know, you, you get a bunch of people that enjoy guns and go out shooting for fun, it's powerful, right? You get, you get a bunch of people at a dog park that all love their dogs, it's powerful, you know? They're all hanging out and talking to each other and they're best friends because they have their dog in common. That's why I'm never there at the dog park. I like my dog, but I don't love my dog like that, right? I'll take her for a walk. That's about as good as it gets. When you share something in common, it's powerful. And we share Jesus in common. Not only ourselves with other believers, and that fellowship is strong. And that fellowship is that source of joy. Verse 6, being confident of this, my, this very thing, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I remember the first time I read the New Testament. God got a hold of my life my freshman year of high school, started reading the Bible January 4th of my freshman year of high school. So it was summertime, right around this time, probably the first or second week of June, I got to the book of Philippians. I'd never read the book of Philippians before. We were at Harris Beach at a family camp, tent camping, southern Oregon, and I'm on a cliff, on this beautiful cliff looking over the Pacific Ocean, and the sun is setting on the Pacific Ocean. I'm reading Philippians chapter 1. Pretty epic. And I get to Philippians 1 verse 6, and I was doing backflips. I couldn't even believe it. I was like, God, this is awesome. You began this work in my life. You've created all this. You've created this beautiful ocean and this beautiful sunset. And I just believed it. I was like, wow, God, you are going to be so faithful to complete that work that you started in me. So the second thing to be confident in that gives us joy is be confident in the finisher. Be confident in the finisher. That he who started a work, he has promised that he will complete it. Apply it to the context. Paul saw God start the church of Philippi. But now he's been removed from them. New leaders are put in place. He can't be there to walk with them through the journey, but he knows and he trusts that God's going to finish the work that he started. We've talked about some good things with the church of Philippi, but there were also some problems. There was some false teaching that was coming in to the church. We'll see that later on. Also, there's some women that were fighting in in chapter 4. One of the reasons that Paul's writing is to address this division that's coming inside of the church. But Paul's not discouraged. Why? Because he's confident. He's confident that God is going to finish the work. Now, anybody out there tonight that's a really good starter of projects, but you're terrible at finishing them? Anybody have like three projects at home that you've started, but you haven't finished? Steve admits it. He's like, yeah, I'm there. It's easy to do, isn't it? It's fun to start. It's exciting to start. You get vision to start, but it's difficult to be able to finish. Well, God loves starting. He loves authoring salvation in our lives, but he also delights in finishing. You're not the finisher. I want you to say, I'm not the finisher on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. I'm not the finisher. Now, do you believe that? We all believe that God's the starter, that he starts 
the work in our lives, but then we put it on ourselves. We're like, oh, I'm the finisher. I've got to complete me. And God's going, nope, you don't complete yourself. I'm going to complete you. I'm going to finish that work that I started in your life. And then when God says, okay, you're done, guess what? It's going to take you up to heaven. Our life's going to be over because his work is complete in our lives. About a year ago, I read a book about a man that they call the Sandman, Riviera, a great pitcher for the Yankees. And the reason that he's called the Sandman is he's a relief pitcher. They would bring him in at the end of the game and he would strike guys out. He'd put them to sleep. So all the Yankee fans call him the Sandman, probably one of the best relief pitchers in the game. He's the finisher. And when the crowd would see him come in, they would just just go, go wild. And the cool thing is he's also a believer. And God's far greater than Riviera, the Sandman. He's the ultimate finisher in our lives. And we can be confident in that. What is it that's causing you to lose joy in your life tonight? And how will joy enter into your life if you get to that place of trust? Confidence comes from trust. So in order for Paul to be confident, he trusts. He sees God's ability, he sees God's promise, and then he rests in it. We won't experience joy if we don't place trust. We can know verse 6 and get excited about a few moments, but it's really putting the weight of our souls into the truth of the scripture. God, you will finish the work that you started in me and also what you've started in others. In verse 7, just as it is right for me to think of this of you all. So Paul's thinking this towards the church of Philippi as well. Because I have you in my heart, in so much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. How did Paul get the church of Philippi in his heart? I believe it's through prayer. People you pray for will be in your heart. And he says, I- I've got you in my heart. I care for you. Even in my chains, in so much as both as my chains and defense of the gospel. And then he writes this beautiful phrase, partakers with me of grace. That describes the Christian life. We're receiving the grace of God and we're receiving the grace of God together. When we have that understanding, then there's the atmosphere of grace in our church and in our homes and our relationships. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. How encouraging would this be to get this letter from the church, from Paul, being the church of Philippi. Paul's like, I love you guys. Every time I think about you, I have joy, and I have the affection of Jesus Christ for you. And literally, this word affection, it has to do with the bowels, and I'm not just trying to be gross. That is not above my personality, but it really is there. Is Paul saying, I care for you so much, I feel it in my gut. The same words used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. He looked out upon the multitudes, and the scripture tells us he was moved with compassion. What that means is he was affected to his very core, where his stomach was, was affected. Ever see someone in need, and you empathize to such a great de- degree that you're actually physically moved? Do you have a family member that's going through cancer? a difficulty in their life, a friend's going through a difficult time, someone that you really care about's just lost a child and your heart just breaks and your stomach's all 
messed up and tweaked. That's exactly what Paul is declaring, the affections of Christ. So we go to the third thing that Paul's confident in tonight, and he's confident in prayer. So he's confident in the body of Christ, he's confident in the finisher, and he's confident in in prayer. Paul lets us know what he prays. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. If you're wondering what to pray for people, Paul's prayers are a great place to start. Think about the body here at RMC, believers, loved ones, maybe even believers that you've never met before. It seems to me from the church of Philippi, though things aren't perfect, things are healthy. It'd be easy for Paul to not really want to think of prayers for, for the church. But Paul seems to me to be like a, a physical trainer, a physical trainer that's never happy with the amount of physical fitness that you're in. You think you're doing well, and the trainer's like, well, you could do a lot better. You, know, you could push yourself a little bit harder. There's, there, and Paul realizes there's always room to grow in Christ. So he says, I want your, abound, your love to abound still more and more. That's who God is. That's what he desires from our lives. That's how he measures growth, is he wants love to grow exponentially in our lives that it would abound more and more, that there'd be no lack of love in our lives. Let's say Jesus chooses to not come back in our lifetime. He might, he might not, but let's say he doesn't. 10 years from now, is our life gonna be more loving than it is tonight? Are we gonna be exponentially more loving than we are tonight, 20 years from now? Again, I think this goes against our flesh and the natural trajectory of things. Natural trajectory, we're not going to be more loving in 10 years. Apart from us pressing into Christ, how many elderly people do you meet that are just abounding in love? It's just coming outside of every, every pore. Most of the time, we get more grumpy, we get more grouchy, we find more things to complain about, and it's just like, well... You know, that's great grandpa. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to look at our lives and go, man, I think I'm more loving. I think love's just starting to abound more and more in my life. And so that's what Paul prays for. It's a good thing to pray. And then knowledge. This is precise and exact knowledge. This is growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's deep and personal knowledge. And then discernment. Why discernment? Discernment is knowing what's right and wrong, knowing what the will of God is, knowing what God's doing in a situation, knowing where the enemy is attacking, and growing in discernment as well. Verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you might be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. I like that word approve. Can you approve the things that are excellent? Do you see God's stamp of approval? I know this is exactly what God desires. This is exactly what God God wants. The word sincere is interesting in, in the Greek. It's speaking of that there would be no blemish. It's our inner righteousness. It's pure, tested by sunlight. There'd be potters in Paul's day that would make their pottery. And if there was a blemish, then they would just cover it up 
And no one could see it unless it was put up to the light. And what Paul is saying is that there wouldn't be any area of our life that we just kind of cover up. Now that's difficult. God exposes something in our character. And you go, oh, I'll just put a little bit of mud over that. I'll put a little Christianese over that. I'll put a little mask over that. I don't want to be honest with myself or God or others about that. And Paul's saying he wants us to be sincere. He's praying for the church of Philippi that they would be sincere, that there'd be no cracks that would just be covered up. And then goes on to say without offense, and this is outer righteousness. First, the inner righteousness, no blemish in my inner heart, my inner man, but then that there wouldn't be something that someone could point at and say, I'm going to bring blame against this, to be blameless. Now, to be blameless doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means to keep short accounts with God and others. When we do sin and we do fall short, that we're quick to confess to God, to ask for apologies from those that, that we need to. I hope we're in the regular practice of when we sin and offend others that we'd say, you know what, honey, would you forgive me? Because I'm sorry. Kids, would you forgive me? I lost my temper, and that's not the way that God would want dad to live. You know, that's hard to do, isn't it? But that's what it means to be in that place where we're without offense. We're making things right if we've wronged someone or sinned against God. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So this is what Paul is praying for, for the church of Ephesus. They'd abound in love, abound in knowledge, abound in discernment. Be without offense, be sincere, be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Their lives more and more would be filled with the Spirit of God. Paul had to have been grieved that he's in prison, that he's not able to be with the church of Philippi, but he's able to be confident in prayer. God hears prayer. I want you to hear me on this. I'm challenged by this. One of the greatest ways that we can love people is to pray for them. Paul believed in the power of prayer. Almost every one of his epistles begin with, I'm praying for you. Here's some things that I'm praying for you. Paul can't lie. He's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. How many times do we tell somebody, hey, I'm praying for you? We never pray for him. It's almost a way to get out of the conversation. Hey, things are kind of awkward right now. I don't know really what to say. So, hey, I'll be praying for you. Gotta go. See ya, right? That's something we should probably take pretty seriously. If I'm gonna tell somebody I'm gonna pray for them, I really wanna follow through with praying for them. It's powerful. It's the greatest way to, to be able to love people is to lift them up to the throne room of God. We have very little capacity to help and bring change, but God's limitless. We're bringing them before God. I picture the Apostle Paul thinking of these believers and bringing them before the throne room of God. The last thing that Paul's confident in as we look from verse 12 down to verse 18 is he's confident in the gospel. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. What's he referring to? Being in prison. Because he's in prison, he's had opportunity to share the gospel, and he has confidence in this. So it brings him joy. Saying, okay, I'm confident in the body of Christ. I'm confident in the finisher. I'm confident in prayer. And lastly, I'm confident in the gospel. What is God committed to? 
getting his name to those that don't know him. So sometimes that involves difficulty in our lives. It involves us having a prison experience. It involves us going to the hospital, going to the mechanic, having something break at the house, difficulty in relationship, because God is reorienting our lives to say, Eric, I want you to be here at this time in this location, and you're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel. How many times do I think about my life in those terms? Very seldom. If something breaks on my car, it's just annoying and expensive and annoying and expensive, right? And I'm not thinking that this has happened out of the furtherance of the gospel. If you've gotten in a car accident, you're probably not thinking, well, how is God going to bring this about for the furtherance of the gospel? If you just lost your job, you're probably not thinking, how does this result in the furtherance of the gospel? But Paul says, firsthand experience, I got to share with these guys because I was in prison. So that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Can you imagine Paul as a prisoner? It's like, hey, you got a sec? Do you know where you'd go when you die? Do you know that God loves you? Do you think he stopped worshiping? Do you think he stopped singing out loud? At Philippi, God allowed the earthquake and the jailbreak. Now in his condition, he's worshiping and God's chosen to leave him in prison. Have you noticed that? Sometimes God radically changes your circumstances for his glory. And other times, God changes your circumstances, none. And you remain in the difficulty for his glory. I picture Paul being like, man, I'm going to worship right now. I'm just going to sing to the Lord. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray out loud. And because of that, the whole palace guard realizes that God had brought Paul to this place to be a testimony of Jesus Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the, the word without fear. As believers heard about Paul being in prison and keeping his testimony strong, they were filled with boldness to proclaim the gospel. It's been several years now, probably four or five years ago, there was a pastor in Pakistan who stood strong for his faith and ultimately was killed. There were some YouTube videos of of his testimony. And he was just sharing. He's saying, you know, I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to hold on to the name of Jesus Christ. I remember seeing those, and it challenged me. It stirred me in the area of boldness. When we see other believers suffer and hold on to Christ, it does cause us to live our lives with more boldness and less fear. In verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. There can be a wrong motivation in proclaiming the gospel. There's some that proclaim the gospel out of selfish ambition, Paul says, out of envy and strife, wanting to build their own name, their own reputation, sometimes just to get money for themselves, Some saw the lack of Paul's leadership as an opportunity for them to rise and influence, and Paul realized that. But he also realized that some were preaching Christ out of goodwill. 
It challenges us. What's my motivation for serving God? Am I serving God because I love the Lord and I want to glorify him? Or or is there kind of some selfish kickback? Am I looking for, for something in return for it? But the latter, out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, Paul realized that he was in prison by God's will out of defense of the gospel. Here's our last verse for tonight. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Two more times, the word joy is recorded for us. What's Paul rejoicing in? Even those that are proclaiming Christ with the wrong motivation, I'm thankful that Christ is being preached. And then those that are doing it out of love, I'm thankful for them too. When was the last time you just got fully excited about the fact that the gospel's getting preached? I'm so thankful. I didn't even get to do it. I didn't even get to be the one that proclaimed the gospel. But I'm so thankful that the gospel is going forth. And Paul knew that out of his chains, out of his suffering, the gospel was going forth in a greater way. He's got confidence in the gospel. So what's the gospel tonight? Is that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again three days later according to the scriptures. And Paul says, I've got confidence in my life that my circumstances are happening ordained by the Lord so that the gospel could be furthered. Also, I know that through my suffering, the gospel is being preached in a greater way, so I'm going to rejoice in those things. So let me ask you a question. Where's your joy? Where's my joy? Wrestle with it for for a moment. Because a lot of things we're open to conviction on, but there's some things we're not. Like, I bet for most of us, we're open to conviction on sexual sin and lust. Oh, yeah, I realize that that's wrong. But this whole thing of joy, you might be thinking, I don't need to press into a joyful life. I can go on being grumpy and miserable. It's not, I'm not ungodly. I'm not going out and cheating on my spouse and doing this and that. I'm just grumbling and complaining a little bit. I like to think of it as the gift of realism, you know? I'm just going to stay in that place of the gift of realism. Somebody's got to shoot straight around here, right? Don't you know that it's an election year and the neither option looks too awesome at this point, you know? Like, I'm, I'm just happy right where I'm at. And then there's others that you go, you know what, it just seems so conjured up. Like, it seems fake. Like, is this just an emotion of like, well, God's good. Praise the Lord. You know? Do I just got to go around doing that all the time? Is that, is that joy? I don't know, that's not what I see Paul doing. He's not giving fake answers. I think this is deep. It's painful. Probably involves some tears from Paul. He's broken that he can't be with the church of Philippi and he chooses, based on who Jesus is, to be thankful. He chooses to go to the place of prayer. He chooses to see God in his circumstances. He chooses to be confident that God will finish that that great work. And in the midst of that, then he found himself in a deep-seated joy. 
So joy's not emotions. Joy, joy is a choice that we make of saying, even in light of my circumstances, even in light of what I don't understand, God's on the throne and I'm in relationship with him. God's on the throne and he's promised me eternal life and he's gonna walk with me through this journey. So let's stand together and let's pray for one another in this area of lessons and joy. Father, I admit to you that many times joy eludes me and I choose to not walk in an attitude of joyfulness. We do pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of how honoring it is to you for us to go through our our days in thanksgiving. We do thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you that we can gather here together with brothers and sisters. We thank you for the church family in Colorado Springs that meet in homes, that meet in buildings, that meet in coffee shops. We thank you for believers in Chihuahua and Uganda and the Middle East. And we're thankful that you complete the good work that you've started in us and in others. You are an awesome finisher. We rejoice in that. We put our soul's confidence in the fact that you will finish what you started. We're thankful that we can cry out to you in prayer, that you hear our prayer. We take advantage of that even right now. We're thankful for the gospel, that you are orchestrating our lives to give us opportunity to proclaim your name. Help us to understand joy. Help us to be able to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.